Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science, our second show back for 2019. My name's Claire. It is great to have you with us. And today on the show, we have another half an hour of science for you. Some new science. I mean, at least I have got some new science. How about you guys? Do you have new no, science? We, as well? we're, we're, we're plumbing the depths. Yeah, no, new, si- new science, old science, all sorts of science. <laughs> well, I'm going to be talking about biobricks. Things that you can add, biological things that you can add to bricks to make them more sustainable and also use waste products. I'm a bit worried about where this is going. Yeah, I think you should be. Um, okay. There's always a twist with my stories. But, um, yeah, it's it's there's some new research that's just been published around these um, biobricks and it's interesting to see what sort of characteristics you get when you add um, non-traditional Brick materials to bricks. Hmm. Mm. Mm. Bricks. Brick. I know. Who thought that bricks could be interesting? Well, you know, Lego bricks are pretty interesting. <laughs> so are these bricks. Stu, Stu what, what do you have for us today? Well, following on from last week when I was talking about the periodic table, this being the international year of the periodic table, I thought I would talk about one of the weirder elements on the periodic table there's a few weird elements on the periodic table. How did you choose? Well, I I actually I googled weird elements, <laughs> let's be honest. No, I was actually looking for I was looking for something that was predicted by Mendeleev and I found something and it's really kind of weird and and you know, if if someone read about it, they would might they might have thought he was making it up. He just oh well, it's going to do this, and it's going to have all these amazing properties. And then they found it, and it did have all these amazing properties. Ah, and, weird and wonderful elements. Yeah, so gallium coming oh. up later in the show. Ah, and Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, uh, we're big fans of science here on Lost in Science. No surprise. No surprises there. Um, Super fans, I would say. But I'm, I want today. I want to actually ask a question and basically challenge the idea whether science does hold all the answers. Um, I'm going to be having a bit of a look at the the most recent, like the recent events with the Murray Darling and the fish deaths and all that kind of stuff, and. I guess the cause of whether science, we have to, by following the science, we can sort everything out, or whether, I guess, it's politics and values that we have to decide on, and science can inform those things, and we have to make decisions based on that, and science doesn't have all the answers, we have to decide what we value. So, a little bit of introspection. A little bit of introspection, a little bit of analysis, hopefully. Yeah. Mm. We all know, we all know, though, there's one book that does contain all the answers. It's the dictionary. (laughs) Certainly contains all the words. Well, anyway. you put them, you've got to put them together the you right way. <laughs> it's not an easy task, but it's entirely up to you to do the work. And that's why they confiscate dictionaries and kids go into exams. They go, that's hey, right. that book's got all the answers in it. You that's can't right. use that. That's right. Right. All right. Well, hopefully we'll have some answers for you on, on Lost in Science today. On with the show. So everyone knows that if you want to keep the big bad wolf out of your house, you need to build your house out of bricks, right? 
sturdy place, this house of bricks. It's... Built in 1776. No? What's that? Okay. Three little bops. Okay. Oh, okay. How do wolves... I mean, wolves can't really purse their lips. Can they get like a good... Can they blow really hard? I mean, I, don't, I question the veracity of that fairy tale. Maybe well, maybe he was in, innovating with something. Maybe okay. he Look, was... To be honest, I mean, who builds a house out of bits of straw that could be easily blown away by a large mammal? Doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense, really. Are we getting off topic yes. uh, already? A little, a little. I mean, I, yeah, I, I was sort of thinking about that fairy tale t- today, though, thinking, like, is that just a comps piece for, like, Big Brick? Like, <laughs> what is that about? Yeah, sponsored by Bob. Yeah, I've always thought that's weird because there's a lot of wooden houses that stand for a long time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. yeah but they're not made of sticks, though. They're made of timber beams. I still beams reckon and a wolf could not blow down a <laughs> stick house. Anyway, so I guess the point of the fairy tale, yes. the point of this, is that bricks are strong and they are a reliable building material. There's a lot of reasons why you might want to use them. They retain heat. They withstand corrosion and resist fire. They're quite small units. You can create many different designs with them and they generally last a long time. And they're made out of naturally occurring materials like clay and shale. Uh, they're just some of the reasons why humans have been using bricks to build structures for about 5,000 years. But your typical traditional brick is also very energy intensive. It takes takes energy to fire the bricks in a kiln. And from a materials point of view, more than 3 billion cubic metres of clay soil, 3 billion cubic metres that is, um, is dug up every single year for the global brick making industry. Yes, I was going to say that it's basically a non-renewable resource. Totally, yeah. You dig a big hole and then... When all the bricks are out of there, you've got a really big hole in the ground yeah, and no and, more bricks. And quite a lot of bricks. Yeah. Um, that is what's needed to produce, you know, the world's bricks. That's 1.5 trillion bricks. Can bricks be recycled? You can clean them. I've seen, you know, you can buy, you can buy recycled bricks. But if they're broken bricks? Well, if they're not, if they're broken. Can you no. melt them down again? You can't melt them down. Exactly. You can't really melt them down, which brings me to my story. How can we make better bricks? Well, how about by using waste products as bricks? Now, let me tell you, there has been some very innovative ideas out there about what to recycle to make bricks. Um, People have used sawdust, paper, cigarette butts, fly ash, sugar waste and polystyrene and silica fume, whatever silica fume is. But new research to come out of RMIT is using something probably that we're all a little bit more familiar with than silica fume. They're using human biosolids. How did I know it was going to come back to this? <laughs> am, I so, am I so obvious? Well, I don't a know. A little, you, maybe. You just maybe, maybe evasive. <laughs> When, when you first introduced the story that made me suspect it might be something to do yes. with biosolids. It is human biosolids. It's the major byproduct of sewerage systems to create bricks. So what, what's in the biosolids that makes them good for being bricks? Um, I mean, there's, there's the old phrase, <laughs> but I don't think you could just... What's d- the phrase? Bleep a brick. That's yeah. bleep a brick. Yeah, bleep a brick. Language warning. I don't yeah. think they just go around and wait for people and just pick them up and build. We've all had them. some... Hard, unflushable. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> indeed, Speak for yourself. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Now, to give you uh, a bit more background about human biosolids than Please. the background you already, <laughs> you've already um, got in your life. So around 30% of the world's human biosolids are sent to landfill, which is quite a lot when you think about the outcomes of the sewerage system. Um, 
And in Australia, this means around 5 million tonnes of bio-waste, which is a bleep tonne of bio-waste, really. Mm. I don't know how much that is. Five million tons. Yeah, I can't picture that. Well, I mean, think think it's of just like a, a massive car. pile of. Think of a car, which might be like a ton or a bit more than a ton, and then think of five million of them. That's a lot of cars. Yeah, it's a lot of cars. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the researchers from RMIT they just published their solution of how to make a more sustainable brick in the journal. I love this journal. Buildings. Buildings. <laughs> yes, that's what's called. That's the journal. That's the journal. Good one. Yeah, great. Anyway, they showed that making uh, bricks with 15 to 25% concentration of these biosolids actually had quite a great outcome for all, for the bricks, for the humans, for the environment, everyone, everyone benefited. Uh, firstly, the bricks only required around half the energy to be created in the first place. They were cheaper to produce. It turns out biosolids are quite cheap these days. Cheap as <laughs> And readily chips. available. Cheap as, cheap as <laughs> chips that have gone through you. The next day. Cheap digested chips. <laughs> digested chips. Also, biosolid bricks are more porous than regular bricks, which meant that they had a lower thermal conductivity. So they transferred heat less, which um, potentially gives buildings a higher environmental performance. If oh, so it insulates the building better. Is that what it does? Yeah. The other great thing about the biosolid enhanced bricks is that you would probably want to know if you're going to build your house out of them. They passed compressive strength tests. Great. Turns out biosolids work in bricks. And the researchers did a lot of tests to determine if if there were any heavy metals contained within the biosolids and within the bricks, whether these heavy metals would leach and they were trapped inside the bricks. So you don't need to worry about heavy metals leaching out of these biosolid bricks. What about how the heavy metals got into the human biosolids? But other (laughs) than that, is gallium a heavy metal? Uh, No, it's actually quite light. Okay, sorry. I thought we might find out later on. Anyway, carry on. Anyway, the researchers worked out that with our current brick manufacturing in Australia and our current biosolid production, which I imagine is only going to increase, if we had uh, 15% biosolids added to our brick production, it that would be um, around the right percentage to use all of our available biosolids in Australia. So all we need to do is add 15% of biosolids to all of our bricks and we've used all our biosolids and it's being diverted away from landfill, which is which is great, right? Mm. Yeah. It's really I, good. <laughs> anyway, I just thought this was a very clever innovation mm-hmm. and um, we should probably um, get on board with and give more bleeps for bricks. So if bricks are currently the number one building material in the country, does this mean that the bio bricks will become the number two building material in the country? <laughs> I think it does. Very good, steer. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. And the recent massive fish deaths in the Darling River near Menindee have they've alarmed the nation, I think it's fair to say, and they have placed more attention on the Murray-Darling Basin plan, 
which was also, of course, recently the subject of a South Australian Royal Commission that released its reports, also got a lot of attention. Um, there are a lot of calls in this for people to follow the science, but I want to ask, can science really tell us what to do? Is following the science enough? Well, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, I'm a big fan of science, but I think that ultimately our decisions are made according to our values, which are then the decisions are informed by science, but it is up to us to work out what we, what we value. It's not all arguing about who's got the best science. It's arguing about, well, what do we actually want out of the science? Absolutely. And I think it's also important to notice that we've changed the environment to such a point where it's no good to just say, well, it used to be like this. We should put it back to this. Yeah, that's because an excellent we're, point. Yeah. We're, we're using it for different purposes. Yeah. We've got irrigation water coming out of the rivers and all sorts of other different things which we want to do with that yep. system. But then to just, you know, th- then science can answer some parts of those questions, but we do still have to say, well, what do we want to happen? How, yeah. do, we, how do we want to use this river or allow this river to be used? Or you that's, know. that's the key point. Yeah, because we by everything we do in the environment has an effect on the environment. Mm. And so the irrigation that we're doing, the water we're taking out of the river for those purposes is going to have an effect on the river and the life in the river and the ecosystem and all this kind of stuff. We can't just say, what does science tell us we have to do to make it just the way it was before if there was no irrigation? Because... That's it's not. We are taking that water out. Yeah, we it's not going to happen. We have to work out how much damage we are prepared to accept, essentially. Mm. But look, first of all, look, let us look at the actual science, the most important science here, I suppose, which is really why did the fish die? Yeah, so, well, that's the first question. That is the first question. And a lot of fish died. A lot of fish died, yeah. So what happens, essentially, this, the simple way to say it is that you get a lot of nutrients coming into the river from agricultural runoff and this sort of thing. Um, when the low flows, when there is a drought and there are low flows, those nutrients hang around in these puddles of water and they cause blue-green algae to, to breed. We get these blue-green algae blooms, as they say. Uh, when the conditions change, then the algae die. Um, they are eaten by bacteria. The bacteria also use oxygen to to live. Um, so the bacteria eat up all the oxygen in the water and then the fish which need to breathe the oxygen suffocate. That's kind of the very simple version mm. of that. Seems like an ecosystem out of balance. It is an ecosystem out of balance, yeah. Yeah, this has happened before, but it's not supposed to happen to the extent that it's happened now. We, we know that Australia is prone to droughts, mm-hmm. you know, the famous droughts and flooding, flooding uh, rains. But the river is not supposed to dry completely like this. And this is hence the need to ensure that there is some water and that it's not all taken up by agricultural irrigation. And this is where the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was supposed to come in. So it was introduced in 2012 to essentially buy back water from irrigators to guarantee a certain amount for the environment. But the question has always been how much water is enough. Yeah, is enough. That is essentially the simple question. Of course, this is where we start to run up against, I guess, science, because science is actually more complicated than that, because it's really the question of what does the environment need? What is the whole, how does the whole system work? So it's not just a question of the total amount of water over a year, for instance. It's about you know, what time of year, how it's distributed, where it is geographically, because the Murray-Darling Basin is huge. Uh, it's about the water quality. Uh, it's about, uh, if you're looking about things like fish, it's about things like um, you know, dead trees in the the river for them to hide in, all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of things going on that makes it very hard to actually give you a, a simple answer. Plus, of course, there is climate change, which we know is affecting all these calculations as well. And that's kind of an unknown, that's an uncertain impact as well. It's very hard to predict what that's going to affect that's going to have. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is difficult to predict. But, you know, for politic, political purposes, we'd like to get a nice, simple um, kind of thing to grasp. And in this case, 
people talk about um, the total volume of so-called environmental flows and they go, how much in gigalitres every year is an acceptable amount for the environment? So the original guide to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan had, it had a few different figures in its sort of scientific modelling, but generally they were, you know, well above 3,000 gigalitres per year to be reserved for the environment, mostly around the 7,000 gigalitres per year range. The actual plan that was agreed and signed up to, for political reasons, was agreed to be 2,750 gigalitres per year, but could be increased to 3,200 if the conditions were right kind of thing, and everyone agreed. So many irrigators, of course, thought that was still too much because every gigalitre that was sent to the environment was... Less gigalitre they didn't have. They didn't a gigalitre they didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in fact, there actually um, – there have been changes made to the plan since. So, the, um, in fact, last year there was that increase to 3,200 gigalitres per year was was kind of the new conditions put in that could happen, um, which led to very – protests on the streets of Melbourne. They're actually very low-key protests by irrigators who apparently had a protest march where they walked down the sidewalk. There weren't too many people there. Um, but they were complaining that the increase in the environmental water would ruin their livelihoods, essentially. So that was kind of the argument they were trying to put in. Then, of course, the fish died, and we found out what the, the, the public really does value because I think pretty much most people in Australia decided that the, the mass fish dying was not acceptable. And so the, the push to, say, reduce the amount of environmental water suddenly was going, well, there's clearly not enough because we're not happy with this, this large-scale death of the fish. Um, and of course, you know, we're talking about the science behind it. There were actually there was good scientific reasons to expect that this could happen. I mean, this had happened before in um, mm. in recent history in the nineties. This was one of the reasons why the the Murray Darling Basin Plan was brought in because similar kind of too much water extracted from the river had caused um, big toxic blooms in the early nineties, uh, and it obviously took a long time to get around to having some sort of management plan in place to to get around that. So yeah, it was known that this could happen. Um, so. Yeah, well, like in these kind of things, people often will argue about what the science says and who has the best science. The irrigators will address on their kind of obsess on their own um, elements of science and bits that they are concerned about. But really, the basic stuff is known. You know, if there's disagreement, it's often around people will emphasize bits on the margins uh, and their or their perspective on the science. But essentially, the question really is, what do we value? In this case, clearly, we value the fish a lot more. Uh, and that's kind of the direction it's going to have to go in. It's, it's one of those situations where it seems, too, that the different approaches can't be compromised in the middle somewhere because if the irrigators get all the water, they'll be happy. If the environment gets all the water, the environment will be happy. But somewhere in the middle doesn't make either side happy and doesn't solve any of the problems from the look of things. Well, so so finding, this, finding, yeah. this, finding this middle ground figure... May, may not actually give either the environment or the farmers what they need anyway. Yeah, well, this is where you start to really get away from the science and go into things like how policy is done. Mm. So one of the um, the things raised in the South Australian Royal Commission was that um, the criticisms raised was that the um, the original plan used a triple bottom line approach where you balance, you try to balance everything, you try to get the least worst outcome for everybody. Um, they're saying it should have actually put the environment first and then considered the socioeconomic. Mm. But even then, you're just saying, essentially saying put the environment first. You're still not saying, well, okay, what does that mean in terms of gigalitres mm. and, and actual outcomes? You know, what are the actual outcomes, the targets we're trying to achieve? And that's what you need to, I guess, pinpoint. 
So, look, it's hard to say what will actually happen ultimately because um, as well as all these other huge problems with the policy and the administration of it, you know, the allegations of, of irrigated stealing water and there's arguments about who should be responsible for what. We've got multiple state governments involved and doing things or not doing things. And bear in mind that we're arguing also about this target level of 2,750 gigalitres is, was the original target that hasn't even been reached yet because the plan was supposed to be implemented up till 2019, which is this year, so it still hasn't even reached that. There's a lot of stuff going on, so it's hard to say what will actually happen. But as I said, if we know what we value, and that is the essentially where we draw the line in the dry riverbed, then hopefully we can at least argue from the same factual basis. As we mentioned on the show last week, 2019 is the International Year of the Periodic Table, Woo-woo. Uh, which was thought up by Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev in 1869. And one of Mendeleev's breakthroughs, and we mentioned this last week, was to recognise that uh, at the time we didn't know all of the possible elements that exist. So he left gaps in his arrangement where known elements didn't fit. Uh, he didn't just jam it all together. He realised there was pieces of the jigsaw puzzle missing. Um, but he did more than that. He predicted the chemical properties of the elements which should fit into those gaps. And one of the ones he predicted was this week's element, which is gallium. Now, if you Google weirdest elements, gallium will almost certainly come up on the list. Is that what you did, Stu? Did you well, Google I actually, weirdest I elements? Well, I actually Googled which elements did Mendeleev predict. Because okay. I was interested to know how he knew, you know, what would fit into the gaps. Um, so gallium has an atomic number of 31, and it falls into group 13 of the periodic table. Very descriptive. So it has similar properties to other metals in that group, aluminium, mm. indium, and thallium, which is all in group 13. Right. Have they all been discovered table. this time? Uh, aluminium had. Uh, I think thallium had. I'm not sure about indium. So... Mendeleev initially called the element Eka aluminium because it comes below aluminium in his periodic table. So What's this Eka? It's Russian, I believe, oh, right. or possibly Greek. Okay. Um, but it becomes hmm. below aluminium in his arrangement. But the element itself was discovered in 1875. So it doesn't exist in its elemental form on Earth only as a compound and it won't be pure gallium until you refine it into its elemental form, which nobody ever done because they didn't know it existed. So they weren't looking for it to figure out what they could make out of it. Mm. Uh, but it is often found in zinc ore bodies and also in bauxite, which is a kind of mineral where aluminium is found. So zinc ore bodies or zinc ore? Zinc. Or bodies. Okay. So bodies of ore, which O-R-E. contain zinc. Okay, right. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Bauxite has high levels of aluminium that gets mined to produce aluminium. It also has relatively high levels of gallium in the bauxite as well. So the metal itself is very odd in that at room temperature, say 25 degrees, it's a solid. It's a metal. But if you pick it up in your hand, it will melt. Ooh. So between... 25 and 37 degrees, it has its melting point. And if you put it down again, it will turn back into a solid. Oh, that's cool. So it's a really weird... Chocolate doesn't do that. Metal. No, it doesn't turn back into a solid. It all separates out. So gallium melts in your hand, probably also in your mouth, but not advisable to eat gallium. It is relatively non-toxic, 
but it can form compounds that have chronic toxic effects. So it can combine with things in the atmosphere and turn into things that become toxic after a period of exposure to them. So people who work with gallium can actually develop uh, illnesses as a result. Mm. Um, It was discovered by a French chemist whose name is Paul-Emile Lecoq de Bois-de-Baudrin, I think is how it's pronounced. (laughs) Possibly not. Possibly. Uh, All you French listeners out there. Please please correct me. Um, Who also discovered some other elements which hadn't been discovered. He discovered samarium and dysprosium. But he named gallium after the Latin for France, which was Gaul. So he's called it after Gaul because he was French. And he found it using spectrometry. spectrometry. Uh, He used a spectrometer to... Do spectrometry. uh, Yeah, to identify the light frequencies coming off this particular element. But that's exactly what Mendeleev predicted. Mendeleev said, someone will find this missing (laughs) element using spectrometry. What? Yeah, he, he knew that he knew of this technology and he figured that if someone was going to find this missing element, that's how they would do it. So Mendeleev knew of the process and he figured that was the best way to find elements that hadn't been found before. Did he say that about all the elements? No, only some and of them. And you also will find that by uh, spectrometry. spectrometry. And you also, <laughs> yeah. you know. That one there? Spectrometry. spectrometry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a bit of a blanket prediction, to be honest. Uh, but he also predicted its properties. So he predicted it would be soluble in acid and in alkaline uh, oh, liquids. Nice. He figured, oh, yeah, if it's if it's here on the periodic table, it will behave like this. And also that it would be non-reactive with air. So he predicted its properties without ever knowing or ever, ever like having aluminium. handled it. Very similar to aluminium. Uh, but uh, gallium is actually a lot more... Um, soluble in a way. Mm. So it actually, uh, it, it um, according to what I've read about it, it can fill in the gaps in the lattices of other metals. So when they form oh. lattices, it fills in the gaps between the lattices. So it very easily forms alloys right. with other metals. Well, aluminium is used to like to hold liquids and stuff like that. And yeah. Dissolved and everything, that wouldn't work too well. Mm. Um, gallium is used for various things. It forms alloys with a lot of other metals, as I said. It's also used in electronics because of its distinctive electronic properties and for making less toxic replacements for mercury thermometers. Oh. So, you know, mercury thermometer that goes up now. Yeah, so you yeah. put, put gallium in there and if it breaks, it's not so much of a big deal. Still don't drink the gallium. Still don't drink the gallium. Still better to avoid drinking metals most of the time. It has also been used to make plutonium more stable for the construction of nuclear weapons. So nuclear warheads have a bit of plutonium in the middle of them, which Mm -hmm. is part of what drives the nuclear explosion. The gallium holds it together and stops it, basically makes the whole thing more stable. Stable. So you can handle it more easily Mm -hmm. and move them Mm -hmm. around without them going off by accident. It's pretty handy, handy. Well... They could just not build them in the first place. I mean, there is it's that option. Guess, but, yeah. you know, if you're going to build them, you might as well put some gallium in there to stop them blowing up in your pocket. That's gallium. Just thought I'd mention it. Probably may have never heard of gallium before. It's a pretty weird sort of a metal to exist. But predicted by the periodic table. What's its chemical symbol? GA. GA. Discovered using the method predicted by the maker of the periodic table and one of the weirdest elements on Earth. 
That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science, our second back for the year. Thanks so much for tuning in. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. It's 2019. It's a new year. Why don't you tell us what you want to hear? You can get in touch with us on email at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. Or you can find us on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR or just listen in on your podcast or on the radio next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.